Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast, and we're going to talk cybersecurity today. We've had a couple of pods on that conversation uh, previously on our show. Today, we're joined by Andy Bell, technology analyst for the Northeast Nebraska Network Consortium, and Gary Needham, who's director of technology at ESU 9, uh, to have a little bit of an extended conversation on this topic. I know it's something that within our ESU network has been discussed regularly over the course of this past year, and even at PDO a couple of weeks back. And so I want to welcome both of you, Andy and Gary, to the pod and maybe give you a little space here from the top to do some introductions for people who don't know you. So Andy, we'll start with you. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. Andy Bell. So I work with the Northeast Nebraska Network Consortium, which composes of ESUs 1, 2, 7, 8, and 17. A little about myself, I've been in public education for 19 years and 14 of that has been focusing on technology. Awesome. And it's always fun to talk to folks who get a chance to work across a number of ESUs and see how regionally they're supporting in their area, uh, but also we can work collaboratively across the state. And today we get to also chat with Gary from Nine. So uh, Gary, do you want to give a little bit of your background education? Sure. I Actually, I have been doing education technology since the previous century. It's kind of weird to be able to say that, but in 1995, I started working at an ESU and was helping schools get connected to the internet and helping teachers learn how to check email using a program called Telnet that we don't use anymore. And been doing education technology ever since then, uh, focusing at least at some points on security. At ESU 9, I'm finishing my 10th year here right now. Well, from those introductions, you can tell that the two, you not only have a long history, but a broad set of experiences with being able to impact and support technology in our state. Uh, and so for our, the sake of our conversation today pertaining to cybersecurity, for those that have not listened to our previous episodes, I would encourage you to go back. Those conversations with Bill Pulte certainly get to some of the what uh, and the how I, I think that's going on right now. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll start there and say, uh, what are we talking about with regards to cybersecurity issues and what are the potential threats as it pertains to schools? Well, there's a, a lot of different threats out there. A lot of it comes back to the internet not being designed to be secure in the first place. 20 years ago, there were two pretty significant things that were going on in the use of the internet. 20 years ago, there were two pretty significant components that I think play into our conversation today. The first one is that the internet was not was seen as a great equalizer and that everybody was on an equal playing field in terms of the voice that they would have and those kinds of things. It's the great equalizer also in that any negative forces would be able to attack anybody else. It isn't necessarily a nation against a nation or individual against individual. You can have nation against individual now and those kinds of things. And and so that's a little bit of a difficult piece. Additionally, if you look at email specifically, it was designed to operate just like our post office system, meaning that I could drop a letter anywhere and I could put any return address on it and it would arrive at that destination. That's not quite the way it works today. There's a lot of security things that have been put in place, but those have had to have been put in place gradually over time. And uh, there's still vulnerabilities that are out there in the way email works specifically because of that. And so many users will recognize that they've started seeing warnings about messages coming from outside and um, different other features that are part of our email ecosystem. And all of that really stems from 
back in the day when it was designed to, to operate just like our post office does. Well, and I know that's something that uh, we've decided to talk a little bit more in depthly about today is that email access, that single email link as being the potential threat. And so, Andy, will you maybe take a moment to talk about how that plays out, what, what a phishing scam is? Sure. So uh, phishing is an email attack attempt. And what that does is that uh, you're trying to get somebody to click on a link and take you someplace or enter in some information that would likely be of interest of some, to somebody else, personal to yourself. Think usernames and passwords, for example. But it's phishing because they're, they're doing it on purpose. They're trying to entice you with the bait. Uh, it could be something like uh, click on this link, enter in your information, you'll get a free gift card to Amazon or something along those lines there. Usually a lot of them focus on you get something of value for free. And the normal way of looking at it is if it seems too good to be true, it usually is. However, not all phishing uh, attempts are of that caliber. Some of them are a lot more tricky, I guess the best way of calling it, where uh, they're trying to use more of a business angle with it and trying to slip it under, under your radar. So it's uh, something that you're used to seeing. And there's different ways of categorizing phishing. The main category that we look at right now is truly just considered phishing. You know, and having had those previous conversations with Bill, and so correct me if I'm not representing that conversation correctly, but what I learned from those was, is that while it might be a threat for students' email to be something that they click on the wrong thing and end up in the wrong space, the student account would not have access to enough of the system broadly uh, for that to really become an issue so much as obviously it becomes a, a greater threat when it's staff or administration uh, that might fall prey to something like this. Is that accurate? Is that fair to say? I think it is. I think that obviously the higher privileges that a user has, the more access to information that will be. And so whether that's the technology administrator because they have full access to a system or whether that's a school administrator that has full access to a set of data, they're considered more of the prime targets and certainly should be more diligent as a result of that. But that doesn't mean that teachers and students shouldn't also know to look out for these things. A perpetrator is looking for any way to get into the system and then pivot to find another way through to get all the access they can. And so if they find one way in, even if it's through kind of a back door, they'll try to find the center of the building no matter what and the vulnerable locations no matter what. And we've seen that that's really important. We've actually done phishing intentionally. We have a program that does phishing of users in our schools in this area. And we've seen that there is a continued vulnerability there. It's not something where you just kind of hear the warning and, okay, we're trained. As we've phished our users, we've noticed a pattern where August and September tend to really be high response times for them. Uh, I think that's partly due to the number of new staff that we have, but I think it's also just because we're trying to work through a lot of things quickly in August. As school's getting going, I'm, there's a lot more pressure. And so I might be more apt to actually click on that phishing email in August or September than I am maybe you know other times of the year when I'm working with a little bit less stress and, and taking more time to do my work. Well, that's interesting because I'm sure that as you're able to run things like that, like the fake phishing test on schools, that there is certain information that you might be able to glean from that that could better help us know when to provide support. So we're talking about like the start of the year or maybe with certain staff members. And so I don't 
Uh, what else have we gleaned, I guess, from some of those experiences? Yeah, in our area, we also do some of these fake fishing attempts. And some of the stuff that we've noticed is some of the older generation, uh, those that may be uh, previously retired coming back working, they tend to have a higher click rate than some of the younger staff members do, which is something that we've kind of uh, noticed as a, a trend, which just gives us a target area that we need to work with. And then also those that are just not as familiar with the technology and the computers, which a lot of times is the same type of demographic. But if we end up with a newer user that is not overly tech savvy, then they just don't have the, the prerequisite knowledge to really know what to look for in these things. And so these training programs are real helpful because it gives a safe environment so that no information is truly lost, but it can be a, just a learning opportunity for everybody. Okay, then. So let's play this out just hypothetically speaking, right? Uh, let's say that someone were to click on one of these links and that these bad actors were to get into a system what are our concerns at that level then? I know information, but what are they seeking and how can that play out? So a lot of times they're, they're looking for personal information. In the public school system or a school system, I guess, you're looking for information that's going to be related to an individual that they can use for credit, medical, those types of things. Things that they might be able to turn around and sell on the dark web. The education system is not usually known for like credit card transactions, that kind of information there. So uh, those that are targeting schools, they know what they're looking for. They're trying to get something that they can turn around and, and use to monetize later on. And so like the, the biggest threat I feel that our students have or that they're at risk for is their credit reports. And so you may not think about pulling a credit report for a five-year-old because I mean, why would they have one? That's the same mentality that an attacker can use where if they're able to go ahead and get a five-year-old social security number and birthday, now they, they have 10, 15 years worth of access to their credit to be able to totally destroy it before anyone even notices. I think it's also worth thinking about what a school has that, that they might want. And in the case of ransomware, which we haven't really discussed, but ransomware is when a bad actor gets into a network and encrypts as many different pieces of it as they can. And by encrypting it, basically they're making it completely unavailable to the school itself or to the people that want to use that, that information. And so then they hold that for ransom, hence the name. So at that point, the school has to choose how many days they might want to be down, how much money it's worth to pay the ransom. And this will probably lead us into an insurance conversation here in a little bit as well. But uh, it, certainly that, that's a, a component of the ransomware discussion. Also, the bad actors that do the, the ransomware have learned that they can, even if they're not paid the ransom by the school, they can turn around and threaten the parents and say, we'll make sure that the transcript gets changed or destroyed if the school doesn't pay the ransom. And so they can turn around and do kind of a secondary attack in different places as well. And, and bad publicity happens as a result of that also. So those are the things that the school could lose in addition to the individual credit pieces that Andy mentioned. Well, and I do know that there is insurance, right, that uh, the districts can carry uh, to combat this. And that has been a conversation uh, here in Nebraska, one that we entertained kind of in depth on a previous podcast, but is certainly worth bringing back up again. And so for those that maybe missed that episode, uh, just kind of very briefly talk about that insurance piece as it pertains to this topic uh, and what we're seeing in our schools here in our state. 
So a lot of the insurance companies offer some level of uh, cyber coverage for their customers. The cyber coverage in many cases is going to work with a reinsurer uh, because sometimes the losses can be uh, extremely high due to the replacement costs and the, the ransoms and stuff like that that are out there. And so what ends up happening then is that if your insurance company has to work with a reinsurer, you have to follow the rules of the reinsurer because basically your insurance company is now having to buy insurance to protect you. It's, it's really how that works. And so a lot of times the insurance companies that work directly with the schools are subject to rules that may seem arbitrary. They may seem kind of out of place because they're being handed to them and they have to abide by them if they want to be able to get this coverage. And we've been in talk with some of these insurance companies uh, because it has a direct impact on our schools. And many times there, they want to know if simply, is there a mechanism in place? Is there some organized strategy that a school is going to use in order to try to protect themselves? Because you go back, back when either myself or Gary started, cyber wasn't even really a word, let alone cyber insurance. And uh, the insurance carriers had no idea about that. I think that I heard that it was probably the early 2000s, maybe even 2010 was when kind of like the first like actual like cyber insurance things started coming up. But back then there was, like Gary said, things were designed to work. They weren't designed to be secure. But as they start realizing that this lack of security can be manipulated, they have to start adding some constraints and some rules with it. And so it's the equivalent, uh, and I know this analogy has been used in previous conversations, but it's the equivalent of having fire protection. You may have a higher insurance premium because they have four fireplaces in it rather than a house that doesn't have a fireplace. Uh, Or you may get a discount if you have smoke detectors or a sprinkler system. And that's kind of the same lines that what the schools are dealing with here. The more proactive the school is in in terms of protecting themselves, their students and their equipment and environment, the greater the insurance coverage and protection they're going to be able to get, or the cheaper things are going to end up being for them, depending on how things roll out. And everything is extremely fluid in this area right now. I know a number of schools were given a set of questions that they had to answer yes or no to, and depending on their answers, determine either the level of coverage that they received. And there's a chance that the set of questions coming in 2022 is going to be far different from the questions that the schools had to answer in 2021. And so this is moving very, very quickly. And the insurance company is good in this area because they're trying to communicate with the schools. And this gives kind of a third-party perspective of here's some great things that you need to focus on. And that has actually been one of the number one things in the last few months that's really spurred the conversation about cybersecurity and actually got Gary and I together to talk more about this from a state-level perspective on things. Well, if I'm not mistaken in this, and again, you all are the experts and can correct me if I've misheard this somewhere, but that as a result of that survey, quite a few schools were dropped from their insurance. Is that right? Yeah, I, they technically they aren't dropped in that they can get the coverage back once they are able to answer the questionnaire in a way that the insurance company has approved. But yeah, the coverage is significantly reduced based on a, a non-compliance at this point. It's probably similar to not having the right number of fire alarms and those kinds of things. So, okay, so I'm going to put two pieces of information together then to build to the next question and say that 
on the one hand, if we are behind expectation in 2022, and to go back to Andy's previous point, that those needs to maintain a certain degree of security are only going to continue to elevate, then we have to be vigilant and proactive, right, in in our efforts to keep up with those third-party expectations, which are really to make sure people are safe. (laughs) Like like that is at its core, that's that's the concern. So um, am I doing all right with putting this together here? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. There's there's definitely a significant discussion going on right now around coordinating the security effort. There's individual pockets, I think, where people are making significant strides in security, but we feel the need where there's a very high percentage of schools in Nebraska that are all on the same network on Network Nebraska to make sure that we are having a cooperative effort because we recognize that the actions of one make a difference for the others. And so I think that's an important conversation for us to have that it's not, it really is better with all of us than it is with individual pockets of excellence. So to add on to Gary's point, uh, I did some digging around on a listserv. And so a lot of the school tech directors, they all share a common listserv to be able to ask questions to one another and, and take advantage of the local resources that we have, which right now our best local resources are our technology professionals all around the schools and across the state. Well, one thing I realized was that of all the questions that were asked from most of 2021 into 2022, only about 11% of those were actually cybersecurity related. That means the other 89% of the questions that were being asked had nothing to do really with cybersecurity or even really security related things, which what that goes to show is our school technology people are slammed with non-security related requests and needs that they have to deal with. Um, getting a new projector, it's very, very important. It's going to have a great impact to the classroom, but has very little to do with cybersecurity. And, and so there's so many other things that our schools are, are burdened with that adding cybersecurity onto this just really taxes everyone to the max. And, and so that's where we're struggling right now is trying to figure out what is the best way of taking advantage of the resources that we have to be able to move forward and be positive with that. And so there are some movement though. So this is not all doom and gloom. Uh, There's a couple of uh, front runners in the state. For example, we have Lincoln Public Schools. They've had a dedicated security officer for over six years, being able to take Lincoln to the next level. And they have a lot of great work and resources that, that they've contributed to that. And they really kind of set the tone for the rest of the state on, hey, we were able to go here. You should probably try to get there too. And so as a result, now ESU3, for example, with, they recently hired uh, their own dedicated cybersecurity individual. And he's going to work with their districts and their ESU to uh, increase the, the security there. I also just have recently found out that my job with the NNC is going to transition to more of a cyber-based role. So a lot of these people are trying to take advantages of the resources that we already have, but may be kind of tweaking the job descriptions a little bit, uh, like in my case, being able to um, utilize existing funds to get dedicated individuals for that. So there is some movement here, and I know that we're all trying to kind of work together. We work together better as a team than individuals. The fight is effectively the same for everybody, but uh, everyone kind of has to do it on their own so we can pool our resources together. 
then everybody kind of wins. Uh, and so we're in the process right now of, of getting to that. I think there's one more significant discussion that we should mention here, and that is that we've talked about, you know, would it be worth having a state coordinator for security? And Andy and I have talked to multiple organizations just around that exact idea. And right now, I don't think there's anybody that disagrees with the idea. At the same time, I don't think there's anybody that feels like they have the resources to make that happen. And so that's kind of where things are sitting at the moment. We still think it's a great idea. We'd love to move it forward and we're trying to figure that out. We piqued my interest there then, Gary, because when you say a state coordinator for this, what would that entail in a hypothetical sense, right? So we're not saying this is going to happen, but what might it take for that individual to do this job effectively? Sure. Well, there's a couple different ways to look at that. One is funding-wise. Funding could come a lot of different directions, but I think the vision that we have is if Network Nebraska members or schools in the state that want to participate in the security community would uh, make a modest contribution, especially compared to what it would cost to hire their own staff, that that would help fund that position. So that's one end of it. On the other end of it is the job description. For the job description, there are a lot of state level meetings. There's a lot of, at the moment, actually, there's a fair amount of federal funding that's related to security and those kinds of things. And we want to make sure that K-12 is represented in those conversations that happen throughout the state and the country. And so that probably would be the, the primary piece of the job description. We also know that there's best practices that not only are specific to K-12, but even Nebraska K-12. There's certain things that we do Actually, even more importantly, there's certain things that we don't do that we could throw out of all the best practices guides that are already published. And that way, nobody has to look at that component because those are things that aren't part of our community here. Yeah, to uh, piggyback off of that, there are a lot of external resources out there that are available. Um, and it, it takes quite a bit of organization and digging around to be able to find all these, build the relationships with them. And then if you, if you flip the coin, you're looking at, let's just take, for example, Patrick Wright. He is our, the, the state security officer. As of right now, without there being a dedicated K-12 cyber coordinator, he would have to work with all 244 public school districts and 17 ESUs to be able to get his point across. Even if he only focuses on just the ESUs, that's still having to main contacts with 17 individuals to be able to get the point out where if we could have a single person there, he could communicate with one person and build a stronger relationship rather than try to foster 17 individual relationships. You know, Patrick is a busy guy. He's got a lot of things on his plate and we want to make sure that we can get the information that we need, build those relationships so that if something does happen, we can move forward with the appropriate plans of what we need to do and getting the people that have the appropriate knowledge and the experience in the right places is really the, the key of what we're looking at. So Patrick Wright, the, the state security office, that's one of them there. You have the Department of Homeland Security. There's the FBI. There's the uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. They have a ton of resources out there. And the list just keeps growing and growing. So in addition to all the financial possibilities that Gary mentioned, there are still a lot of other ones out there. These, these organizations, many of them are federally based, uh, some state-based that want to help out. They have tools for us. They have information and they have reports, but it takes a lot to ingest all that. Uh, and also like what Gary said about best practices, 
you know, there are certain systems out there that our schools are never, ever going to use. Even our largest schools are not going to use some of the technologies that are included in some of these reports. And so having a dedicated individual that can say, all right, we're going to focus on just the, the equipment that's used in K-12 is going to be a great benefit because it'll save everybody else's time from having to understand and realize this is what they need to be able to pay attention to. In addition to those other duties that I mentioned before, one last thing that I can think of that a state cybersecurity coordinator would be responsible for is people like the NNNC security person, the Lincoln Public Schools security person, the ESU3, and any others that might get hired around the state. Um, I think they would lead that community as well. They would lead discussions. They would help coordinate and make and pass resources back and forth and make sure that we aren't reinventing the wheel in each place where those resources are being created. And then on top of that, for the other parts of the state that maybe haven't chosen yet, at least, to have their own cybersecurity person, they would be able to communicate well with the outstate Nebraska people and make sure that those resources can also be made available to them. Well, then I think my next question would just be to say, what happens if we don't do anything? So let's play a little devil's advocate to this. If someone like this is not hired, if the collaboration across multiple levels that Andy was referencing does not take place uh, and we don't seek out the funding potentially to enhance some of the things we're talking about here, what then? Uh, I, I would say that those that want to focus on it are going to focus on it. And those that don't see the focus, uh, either they don't see the need or they don't have the resources to be able to dedicate to it. Uh, they will just continue to move forward with status quo. And unfortunately, what that result is going to be is more targets available for those that are trying to attack. And so doing nothing is just going to keep the vulnerable doors open longer. Being able to have a concerted and controlled effort is going to do a lot more proactively to shut those doors and keep everyone safe and protected. Well, and just as a point of reference, because I do think that people have a tendency to say, well, that's somewhere else, that's someone else, that's not us. Uh, I know that there's been attacks from Gearing to Papillion and in between. Um, do we have a number particularly of, of about how many attacks have been in Nebraska to date? Just within K-12 community, it's in the probably five to seven range that are, I would say, newsworthy. There are also smaller things that happen, right? If a, if a laptop gets stolen out of a car and the drive's not encrypted and it has IEPs on it, is that a breach? Yeah, actually it is. So there's those kinds of things that don't really make the news at a state level that might be happening locally that would still qualify as cyber events. So those are other things that I think we need to think about and definitely will get addressed as we start developing more policies around these kinds of things. According to uh, K-12-6, uh, there's been 1,331 reported incidents across the country since 2016, just for K-12. Wow. Well, in the midst of that, then, if you're not able to impact this decision-making enough to bring about some of the changes that we've already discussed, what might be a bit of a call to action for uh, I mean, we kind of run the gamut, right? Like teachers, administrators, tech integrationists, and so on. Sure. Well, it, going back to the email discussion we had at the beginning, certainly everybody has a role. Teachers and administrators need to be aware that they're targets. Their email specifically is definitely a target. 
some of the information that is on the school website, if it's publicly available, it's great to have it publicly available for parents, but that makes it publicly available for a lot of other people too, including the attackers. So those are the kinds of considerations that, that individuals maybe need to think about related to school. And that's a, that's a good reason to use, say, a learning management system or uh, some sort of closed communication system as opposed to just putting all classroom information on uh, a public website. On the tech side, I think technicians are going to start needing to adjust their tech plans. Individual ESUs and schools are both going to need to evaluate, do we have enough security products? Do we have the right backups in place? Uh, those kinds of things. And those are things that we'll have to do regardless of whether this is state coordinator. I just think it's going to take a lot more work and effort on individual parts to not have one, somebody that, that we can rely on and foster communication at the state level. Wow. Well, and I'd say, and as those responsibilities uh, are ramped up for those individuals, it's certainly going to pull them from a plate that's already, I'm sure, very full. <laughs> so, uh, Andy, go ahead. I guess uh, um, I kind of cut you off. I was just going to add that uh, for the school personnel, you know, reach out to your ESU. Let them know that you have an interest in individual products or concepts or whatever, because for your district, for one district, you may be looking at retail pricing, but if we can get a bunch of districts together, either everybody within your ESU or even a number of ESUs together, then we can usually get a, a cheaper price for some of these security topics and, and softwares and tools that are out there. And also your ESU may also already be aware of some of these next steps that you can take, but the conversation needs to start somewhere. And you know your ESUs are working hard to uh, provide all the protection that they can for you. But if, if the district reaches out to the ESU to ask the questions, then that really puts at the forefront of the ESU's mind. Um, and that's sometimes, they, that's what they need. They just need to know that, hey, you actually want some help with this and uh, the ESU is, it wants to help you. So just keep your ESU in, involved with that and uh, that will help things to move forward. Well, then, uh, gosh, I say it every week, but 30 minutes goes by really fast. And so uh, at this point, I just got to say thank you to the two of you. I know, Andy, Gary, that, that uh, you've been great advocates on this topic and have shared out in ways that have just brought about greater sense of awareness and really grateful that you took the time today to be on the podcast so we can record this conversation and invite more of us in the education community to think deeply about this topic uh, and to get uh, involved in the ways that the two of you just noted. So uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much.